I think it's important to start with uh, clear requirements of what you want the system to achieve and outline those in a document. And then as you do your evaluation, constantly come back to that requirements document and say, does it achieve this, this, and this? Okay, good. Once you've identified the population of solutions that can achieve your needs today and tomorrow, what are the costs? How are those costs structured? How will your data flow from that system into your other systems? Right now it's 2019, and there is no reason at all for people to be keying in data from one system into another. Our systems should be talking, they should be connected, let the APIs and the servers do the heavy lifting, you want to make sure everyone plays nice together on the playground of your tech stack. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories podcast. This is Aoife, and I'm a guest host today, and I'm really excited to welcome Jim Gallus to the podcast. Jim is the VP of Finance for Cruise Consulting and has also been the head of finance for Zero North America and TrapX Security, so a lot of experience with startups and everything there. Welcome, Jim, and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. Great, great. So I suppose we'll get straight into it. Um, let's start with learning a little bit about you and what your background is and, and what brought you to your role now with Cruise Consulting. Yeah, along my career path, I've definitely made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I've definitely had a lot of great lessons as a result of those mistakes. For me, it's also been a very meandering path. It has not been a straight line. But if I had to sum it up, I would uh, describe it as three things, hard work and sacrifice, very generous mentors, and luck. So when I graduated from undergrad, I was so excited to be done with school. I said, all right, I'm out in the real world, and I can start earning money, and I'm done with that stuff. And I knew I needed to get my CPA as a good foundation for a career in accounting and finance. So when friends would be going out after work to happy hour, I was packing up my backpack and going to the CPA review courses. After a few tries, I eventually passed that test. It's a long, dogged test, but earned my CPA. And then I knew that it would behoove my career to get an MBA. To get an MBA, you have to get into business school. So I went to CPA review courses at night. And then once I got into business school, I went part-time, and so I had three years of weeknights and weekends of just grueling school. It was one of the hardest things I've done, but I also consider it one of the greatest gifts that I could have given myself. And then today, it's really important that I'm constantly sharpening the sword. Uh, laws and the environment, regulations are constantly changing, and the moment that you stop your continuous education, you're suddenly falling backwards. So I was clearly misinformed with myself that my education was done and learned that it's a continuous process of, of growth and education. And then there's an expression that says that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And there's no question that a career is a marathon, not a sprint. And if several experienced professionals hadn't taken the time to share the benefit of their knowledge and experience with me, 
there's no chance that I would have achieved what I've been able to achieve in my career. And that's why for me, mentoring my team is so critical and important in giving back. Absolutely. That's really interesting. It's it's something that we hear all the time, that hard work and sacrifice and also that life is a, a constant learning journey. So kind of you never stop being in school. It's something that you have to keep working on and keep progressing towards. And it's really interesting as well to hear that now, now that you've kind of gone through that and, and you're at this stage in your career that you then give back and, and you're a mentor to your team. It's, it's a really good thing to hear. I think it's just part of the life cycle of professional development. Again, if people hadn't done that for me, then I wouldn't have been able to achieve what I've achieved. And so it's incumbent on me to give that same gift back to people in their careers. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about um, the roles that you've worked in, say the role that you work in currently, but also the types of roles that have led you to this particular role that you have now with Cruise Consulting. Yeah. So I started my career as an auditor. And that's the bones of producing financial statements, understanding the technical side of accounting. And as an auditor, you really learn because you're evaluating other people's work. It helps you really understand the concepts much more clearly. And through a seemingly random event, I was given the opportunity to move from being an auditor into an HR role. So for four years, I headed up an HR function, which I didn't have any background on and went to school on Saturdays for that uh, to learn about the technical side of, of HR. And that was really interesting as well. And then I became the controller for a publicly traded company, turned around a company and uh, got into more of the FP&A side of things. And along the way, I had pit stops in business valuation and treasury management as well. So each different points in time, I've, I've focused on the different sub areas within sort of the finance and administration side. So I've, I've got the financial statement controller side, I've gotten the FP&A side, I've gotten the treasury function. And all those different experiences have put me in a position today that I can then draw upon those experiences in working with my startup clients and helping them with their needs. Absolutely, yeah, no, it's a really, a really interesting background. I didn't realize the the HR role there thrown in at the beginning. So that's certainly um, <laughs> more diverse again, and probably something that's very helpful for you now, actually, as you said, managing a team and working with a team, and then also consulting with, with other companies. It must be come in, come in handy to have that kind of life experience. Another great gift that was given to me, I say given, but people regularly think that there's tension between investing in HR and the spending mindfulness of the finance person. And to me, I don't think there is tension between investing in your people and getting great results for the company. A company is comprised of its people and making sure that they have a great onboarding and foundational experience as they come in, and that they're given the tools and resources that they need to do their absolute best work is critical to a company's success. And that experience in HR definitely gave me a a unique perspective on that, that I might not have had had I solely been minding the books my whole career. Absolutely. And aside then from that kind of HR experience that you have and your career to date and bringing it into what you do now with Cruise, is there any other learnings that you've had along the way aside from the HR and also obviously the technical accounting and the analysis accounting that you have? Are there any other skills that you bring forward or learnings that really help you when you go and you consult for different startups now in your current role? 
Yeah, I think one of the biggest lessons that I had in my career was early on when I was working as an auditor. And just a few years out of school, I had received an assignment and I wasn't really clear on how to do it. And I had asked other more senior professionals to help out and mostly stepped away from the job. They kind of took it over. And at the time, I thought I had figured this work thing out. I'm, here I was delegating and getting stuff done as a result. And you know, I thought I was going places. And as I reflected on that, it actually became a huge lesson for me that that was a huge failure of my responsibilities. And that in your job, almost no matter what it is you're doing, your biggest responsibility is to take work off your boss's plate and to provide leverage for them. And that's how you learn. That's how you grow. And that's how you add value to your organization that's employing you above and beyond your job description. And that's ultimately how you achieve upward mobility. And I don't remember exactly what that assignment was that I had delegated, but I didn't learn that task. And that was a big lesson that when I go into companies today, my role is to provide leverage to the CEO or founder of a company because they're the ones that are doing the work otherwise. There's typically not someone else in the finance function when I'm coming in. The other thing I'll add here is it's important to make a good, strong first effort on your own before asking for help. So I think there's no such thing as a stupid question. The only stupid question is the one that you don't ask. But there's also so many resources available to find answers to what your questions might be. And getting back to that leverage thing, if you're able to figure something out on your, through your own research, then you become stronger in the process and you haven't taken the valuable time of someone else. So it's important to find that balance between asking for help and questions and also just taking just some basic first steps to try and find the answer out on your own. Yeah, absolutely. And taking the time to learn and even the benefit that you get from trying to learn that, trying to work it out and that kind of learning that you get, you'll carry that through and kind of going outside of your comfort zone to, to get to that is, is a great thing for people to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree that the edge of your comfort zone is where growth happens. I'm finding that I'm trying to spend more time there. It's uncomfortable, of course, for me and everyone else, but that's, I think, an important thing to do. You're a little bit more nervous going into things, but at the end, you get get more out of them, I suppose. Agreed. Great. Well, that sort of brings me on then to my next question. And so you mentioned there that when you go into the, the companies that you consult for, you look to help the CEO in every way that you can. At what stage do you think is the right time to bring in an outsourced CFO or indeed to bring in a CFO in-house? So there are three main areas where a CFO has responsibility. It's the strategic leader, the protector, and the accountant. And when a business has enough moving parts where a professional can add top-line value, I think that's when they need to consider a CFO hire. The role of a CEO is to have boundless optimism about what their company can do and be and achieve. And the CFO's role on some levels is to act as a counterbalance to that by asking the right questions to make sure that the CEO doesn't bring the organization out past its skis. So a CEO has a vision of we can go do this and this and that. And the CFO has to just ask the questions of, how do we do that with the resources that we have in an efficient manner? In my roles as consulting CFO, like I said, I really am providing leverage to that CEO, drawing upon my experience to see down the road and around the corners of where a company is going 
So that way to make sure that it's proactively prepared for those milestones and events and is not caught on its heels, but instead is is forward on its feet and can hit those events in stride because it's taken the steps with sufficient time to be ready for them. And this could be around people, processes, or technologies. Absolutely, absolutely. That point about the CEO having boundless amounts of energy and vision, I can, I can relate that very much to Procurify and, and our CEO here. I can, I can definitely <laughs> see how that's a common trait <laughs> going through the CEOs. Great. So with that then, do you see, is there a typical size or a typical growth path when you'd be brought in or is that very much organizationally dependent? It does depend on the company. And, and an example, I would say for software startup companies, it's typically around series B or C that they're bringing in a financial leader. And that's usually a head of finance or a VP of finance. And it's not until later stages where you're bringing in someone with the title of CFO. That's a little contrast to medical device companies or companies in biotech where they're much more regulated environments. You're dealing with FDA trials and so forth. And it's not uncommon for those types of companies to have a CFO before they've even released product. They could still be in trial stages and they have a CFO and they might even do an IPO and become listed as a public company before they have any commercial operations. So it does depend on the company and what their particular needs are. Absolutely. And, and the industry, it would seem as well, plays plays a big role in that. And do you tend to focus on a particular industry or are you industry agnostic? Do you kind of deal with different different types of industries all the time? In my career, I've spent time in e-commerce, a decent amount of time in SaaS. And I'd say that SaaS is where I'm most comfortable today. I'm also working with a startup that's in the medical device, a blood testing device specifically. And I'm finding this world absolutely fascinating. The work that they're doing, it literally can change the world. It's a different pace. They're not commercial. They're still in an R&D phase. So I'm not sure that it's completely the right fit, but I'm enjoying the experience for sure. Continuing the learning. Always continuing the That's learning. That's exactly right. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. And out of interest, how do you find that difference between being in a consulting company where you work with different industries, say it could be SaaS or it could be medical devices, versus working in-house as that, say, head of finance, like you might have done with Zero? How do you find those two contrasts? Consulting roles are so much fun. You are surrounded by driven professionals, get to see all kinds of different clients and ways of doing things, and are encouraged to develop thought leadership and invest in your knowledge. And I like to think of consulting roles as accelerants to a career. That's part of the reason why I started my career as an auditor in a CPA firm. That was advice that was given to me by others, was the longer you can stay as an auditor, the higher up it will put you from a position in an internal role. And I think the longer you're in consulting, the deeper your knowledge becomes. But at the same time, there's only so deep you can ever get with any one client before the engagement is complete and you need to move on to the next one. Whereas in an in-house role, your responsibility is primarily to apply your knowledge to effectively run the business. And now you are the client calling upon subject matter experts for technical matters that might be beyond your resource capacity or expertise 
And in in-house roles, your impact can be deep and sustained. So I really do enjoy both consulting and in-house roles, but for different reasons and at different times. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. More of that learning. No, that's great to know. And I suppose then going back to your current role in consulting with, with Cruise, and um, when you do take on a new um, engagement or, or a new client, how do you approach that? When you first go in, what are the first things that you look at? You have to evaluate your biggest areas of risk. What's a company's cash position and how long is its runway? Is the company making money or is it still drawing on investor money to fuel growth? What areas are optimized and which ones are ripe for improvement? Generally, procurement is in an area where procurement, meaning purchasing and spending of money, is an area that can benefit from process and structure. And that's not because people don't care. In fact, on the contrary, I found that most people with spending responsibilities in companies tend to be very mindful and concerned about how they're spending their company's money. But there are certain approaches that can be architected, such as volume purchase discounts or extended payment terms or other things that are responsibility of the finance team to really introduce. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of looking at those processes, seeing what operate, like how they're operating now, how they're using their cash and and how you can look at those, improve those and help them to get to that next level. Yeah, it's, it's part of the strategic thinker. It's also part of the protector of the organization and cash is the lifeblood of a company. Exactly. And are there any sort of big red flags that you see or is, is there ever a situation where you'd say, no, we can't go any further with that or we don't know how to help there? Has that ever happened? Yeah, there was a time, not so much on the consultant side, but I once joined a company where the previous leadership had made a lot of bad business deals to get in a lot of high prestige logos with the intent of being acquired for the company. And the economy turned south. And as a result, the M&A market dried up along with their operating plan. And so I was brought in to turn around the company and I took stock of its business model and realized that the economics were completely upside down. We were giving away much more than we should have to our relationship partners. And so I had to put things in different buckets and I put our top 40 relationships into a high-touch bucket, traveled the country, and renegotiated all of our agreements to more favorable terms. For the rest of them, I took a negative confirmation approach and communicated that we'd be moving them to our new model if they didn't object by a certain date. And then I led a rebranding of the company and created a new revenue stream. All these actions brought the company into profitability for its first time in its nine-year history. I was so excited to have turned the ship around. Yeah, sounds sounds amazing. Because your question is about dire situations where I'm not able to help. The company still had some crushing debt, and there is no way to get around the cash needs for those obligations. And the company also had neglected its internal technology infrastructure. And as a result, we weren't able to make the business moves to create new products and different offerings that we ultimately should have. And the company wound up folding. And when I reflect on my career, I consider this time to be one of my greatest professional achievements for what we did, and also one of my biggest failures for not doing enough to create sustainable longevity for this company. So at the end of the day, I had an amazing experience, worked with great people, and just learned volumes in the process. But short-term win, but long-term, call it a failure. 
Yeah, I, I suppose so. You did a lot of things and learned a lot and how that you could turn around a business in a certain way. But then at the end of the day, it, it proved not to be enough due to what was going on cash-wise internally. That's right. And then from your experience then with um, your prior companies and with consulting, is there anything that you would advise companies, say, with funding, either a big funding round from a venture capital or in managing their cash? Is there anything, any advice that you would give to them um, in terms of managing that, that spending and using that money well? Yeah. So I've definitely heard of companies where they, they get a big funding round and all of a sudden they're flush with cash. And there have and you see the headlines all the time of these startups throwing big parties and so forth. And there are startups who have not been as mindful of their spend and have come really close to the brink of, of folding and running out of cash. But ultimately they were able to pull a rabbit or two out of a hat and make it through to the other side. And those companies that have gone through that gauntlet of having to really pare back expenses and really take a hard look at every dime that goes out the door have come through stronger and much more disciplined with their spending than they might have otherwise. And I think the challenge for companies today when they have funding is to operate with that spending discipline early on without having to go through that gauntlet of almost losing all your cash and and going out of business. And I think how companies do that, the right approach is to have departmental budgets that are agreed upon, that are regularly reviewed against actual spend. And this is critical. It keeps the organization in line with its planned resource allocation, assuming the top line is performing as expected. And the sooner that a company can build this muscle into their actions, the better off they'll be in the long run because it just creates that discipline of spend and review on a regular cadence. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of, that early on control of that, say, funding that they have or money that they're spending and controlling that as they progress and making sure that they keep tight controls around that is definitely very important. That's something that we, um, we as a kind of just about to be Series B company are becoming very aware of. And also given the nature of our business, I suppose, as well, it's something that we'd be very aware of here as well. Nice. And so with your role in Cruise, what would you say is a typical spend culture of the companies or I suppose, in relation to what we talked about earlier and and how different the organizations are, is there a typical spend culture that you would see? I think it depends on, the again, the company and where they are in their life cycle. So most of Cruise's clients are seed through Series B companies. So they're earlier stage and they're outsourcing their entire finance and accounting function to Cruise. And a lot of them are still trying to find product market fit they haven't quite validated the revenue model yet. So they're still quite disciplined, I think, in their spend because they don't have much coming in on the top line. Once companies start to really validate that revenue engine and then want to achieve high velocity of growth, that they're directing spending to achieve that. And that's all on customer acquisition costs, customer success and making sure that customers have the right experience in the product and want to talk about it to other people and come back again when it's time to renew. 
Absolutely. And in terms of that, then those spend processes was, is technology something that you would advise on there within Cruise as well of kind of that technology infrastructure in terms of managing spend or indeed and um, setting up those operations more efficiently for when they grow? I think the most important thing from a technology and spend perspective is to have a tool. Excel is great, but in some ways it's also one of the biggest curses because people try and do everything in Excel. So find a system that meets your needs today and can grow with you to where you're going to be tomorrow and let the system do the work. Take things out of email, put the communication streams in the system where they are subject relevant and the system should be doing the work. And so it can be a PO system. For example, POs, purchase orders are a step function improvement in a company's procure-to-pay process. And in general, when we talk about systems and we're, we're considering internal controls, properly designed and implemented internal controls are going to protect the company from reasonable and expected risks from where the business is in its life cycle and resources. So you're not going to implement public company spending controls in a Series A startup, although you might ultimately evolve toward them. The introduction of purchase orders is one of the more significant internal controls that you can introduce. And these are critical in keeping spending under control because they force costs to be managed and approved before they occur. Prior to the introduction of purchase orders, it's a reactive posture on spending. People are going to spend the money and you kind of pay it. And you've either gone below budget or over budget. But there's no opportunity to be proactive in that spend. And so without question, step function change in a company is a system of purchase orders. Absolutely. Knowing what you're spending before you go out and spend it and it's gone. You can't do anything about it then. Exactly. The horses are out of the barn at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And is there anything then, would there be important things that you would advise to look out for when choosing a tool and also when implementing a tool? So things maybe internally in an organization that you would need to look out for? I think it's important to start with uh, clear requirements of what you want the system to achieve and outline those in a document. And then as you do your evaluation, constantly come back to that requirements document and say, does it achieve this, this, and this? Okay, good. Once you've identified the population of solutions that can achieve your needs today and tomorrow, what are the costs? How are those costs structured? How will your data flow from that system into your other systems? Right now it's 2019, and there is no reason at all for people to be keying in data from one system into another. Our systems should be talking. They should be connected. Let the APIs and the servers do the heavy lifting. You want to make sure everyone plays nice together on the playground of your tech stack. Absolutely. And in this day and age, with, with so much technology out there and the landscape changing all the time and so quickly, there's so much out there to be considered. And there's so many ways to help um, your organization to work easier, I suppose, and more efficiently. And like you said, to everything to play nicely, to make everything easier for everybody. Yeah. So in terms of the accounting industry and what accountants do now and do now compared to what they used to do, how do you think the industry is changing and how do you think technology is affecting the accounting function? Yeah, there's no question we are going through monumental changes in the accounting industry. And I think we see it most pronounced in the different types of CPA firms out there. There's the old guard who wants to keep doing things the way they've always been done. 
And then you have a new breed of modern finance professionals who are embracing technology, connected systems, and automation. And when I was at zero, we had a saying, let the servers do the work. I recently read a stat that the average business today is using 129 apps. And there's all kinds of improved telemetry, operational efficiency, and strategic insights that come from these tools that weren't there five years ago. These tools enable people to do more. At the same time, the pace of change is accelerating. So those who aren't on board and embracing the new way of working will quickly find themselves left behind and irrelevant. And this is a shift in mindset for accountants who really were debits equal credits and producing financial statements. And now all of a sudden, a sophisticated, capable finance professional suddenly has to be tech savvy and tech oriented as well. You have to be mindful of data and data flows and will these systems work together? How do we implement new systems? That's all outside of the standard and historical view of what an accountant does. But if you're not doing those things, if you're not leveraging technologies today, you're doing your organization and yourself a disservice. Yes, absolutely. The, the rate of change is insane. And there's so many different tools that the situation has occurred that if you're not adopting and if you don't adopt these tools or, or aren't adaptable to change, I suppose, that you're going to be left behind and, and you need to be ready to try these new things. And like you said, that's sad about how many apps a, a business is using now. It's it's crazy. <laughs> it's a really important skill, I suppose, that you'd need to know now as an accountant and as a finance professional, that what you used to know many years ago probably isn't going to cut the crumbs now. And we'll definitely not cut the crumbs tomorrow. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I suppose with that and how that changes uh, the company culture and, and the way the companies um, operate, are there any other tools that you think help to foster this good spend culture that we talked about and this good, I suppose, accounting control in an organization? It's not so much specific tools, but more processes. I've spoken to companies about creating scale within their business as they want it to grow. That's largely a process architecture exercise where you're creating standardization across your workflows and you're creating consistency. I mean, if you think about it, business is really repeatable business functions that are executed consistently over and over. And that's part of the reason why McDonald's has thrived so well is because you can get the same burger at a, the same cost almost anywhere in the world. They've created a consistent and reliable product and outcome. And so whatever company you're in, it's kind of the same thing, is creating that consistency and architecting your processes to make sure that there are systems of review for the internal control side and you have that regular engine of flow and work and the tool should be complementing and enabling that. Absolutely. Once you have the people and the processes in place, then all these tools that we now have, they can come in and help. It all work a lot easier. It's like you said, the service should be doing the work. They can do the work, but you have to have that foundation of, of process and system and the way that you want to work in place already. Well said. Perfect. And then I suppose that brings me on to my last question then, Jim, a little bit outside of um, these processes and controls we've been talking about, but is there any new belief, behavior, or habit that you have picked up in the last few years that has most improved your life, either professionally or personally? Yeah, I think that's a great question. We started to touch on it actually at the beginning of our discussion, where we talked about embracing the edge of your comfort zone. And that used to be an area, when I was younger in my career, 
I wanted to represent that I could do anything and I could accomplish anything. And that's part of the great gift of the optimism of youth. But the other side of that is a little bit of naivety. But what I've found and learned is the best leaders will actually gravitate themselves to the areas where they are uncomfortable. If I don't like doing something, it's probably because I'm weak in it. And so I've learned that I should go and rather than hesitate and back away or just put it on a back burner, I should go towards that because that will force me to grow and get a different and clearer perspective on it. I've also learned that there's so much to know that I can't know everything. And to be very clear to say, you know what, I don't know that. And to be comfortable in saying that I don't know something and really just adopt that growth mindset of trying to stay on the edge of things of my comfort zone and continually learn and grow and embrace the things that that I'm not comfortable with. It's scary. Yeah, absolutely. No, I really like that. The idea that um, you should go out of your comfort zone and try to do things that maybe you're not comfortable with and that you can learn from. But if you can't do something, then that's okay too. When you have tried and, and you know that you've put the effort in and you have tried that outside of your comfort zone, then there is a time that you can step back and say, look, that's not for me, but maybe there's another way that I can achieve that. Agreed. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for joining us. It's been great catching up with you. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, and for us. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Spend Culture Stories podcast, sponsored by Procurify. If you'd like to learn more about your spend culture, take our quiz at spendculture.com.